This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Why in some parts of the world do parents rarely play with their babies and never with toddlers? Why in some cultures are children not fully recognized as individuals until they're older? And how are routine habits of etiquette and hygiene taught, or not, to children in other societies? Drawing on a lifetime's experience as an anthropologist, David Lancey, takes us on a journey across the globe to show how children are raised differently in different cultures. And we're going to be talking with David in this part of today's show. Intriguing and sometimes shocking, his discoveries demonstrate that our ideas about children are relatively recent, they're untested, and they often contrast starkly with those in other parts of the world. Lancey says that we are, by historical standards, guilty of overparenting, or of micromanaging our children's lives. David has a fascinating perspective on what's going on in our country and in many, many other countries and cultures around the world, and he's really going to get us to challenge a lot of the things that we think are true. He's going to encourage us to think differently about children and by doing so maybe to feel a little bit more relaxed about our own parenting skills. I'm Armin Brandt. It all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Chris, you're not acting like a grown-up in our relationship. M2, M2! There's your comic book collection, the race car bed. I'm young at heart, but I put money into my 401k every paycheck. I'm taking control over my financial life, and that feels pretty grown-up to me. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. Are those footy pajamas? This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is David Lancey, who's the author of Raising Children, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. David, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about how an anthropologist decided to do a parenting book. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a gradual evolution, actually. Um, uh, I had... Uh, published an article, a strictly academic article in American Anthropologist in 2007, um, dealing with the question of parent-child play, our view of the literature in anthropology on parent-child play, basically coming to the conclusion that it was really quite quite rare, and um, that, that our uh, modern push, if you will, to um, insist that parents play with their children and this is somehow essential and normal. Um, I wasn't thinking so much of providing a counter-argument to that, but a journalist at the Boston Globe idea and published an article in the Globe <clears throat> highlighting my article and its implications for uh, modern parenting. And that kind of led to a lot of attention. I got interviewed on other radio shows and so on and so forth. So that was my first real inkling of the possibility that the anthropology, exotic and remote as it was, 
might have something to speak to um, contemporary parents. And <clears throat> then a few years after that, again, had an opportunity to, at an academic conference, um, an editor of Psychology Today who in, invited me to, um, to do a blog relating anthropology or what I'd learned from the anthropology of childhood to, again, contemporary childhood. And um, so I, I, I did, I began that, and uh, the blog was called Benign Neglect because the overall theme was uh, maybe less parenting is more, <laughs> something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And um, then, um, again, a few years later, uh, my second, the second edition of my academic book on the anthropology of childhood uh, hit a hit a popular um, struck a popular note, I guess, and and it was picked up by a broader audience in Cambridge University Press. Right. The, the author, the uh, publisher, uh, asked me if I wanted to do a book on that would be uh, written for the lay audience. Yeah. Parents. So here we are. And yeah. I said uh, initially, no, I don't really. I, I, I just that just seemed like a, a, a totally um, off track. But but my wife, who's my muse, uh, suggested that perhaps my blog posts, which I had been doing not very often, but whenever I was inspired by something in the news, and, and I'd say, well. I think we might say something about that. Right. But over a two or three year period, I'd accumulated quite a few of these, and they did form a nice basis for mm -hmm. a, a book, a small yeah. short book. Book, and so that's uh, and Cambridge was fine with that idea. Right. Well, David, let, so let's that's, uh, let's that's where we got here. Yeah. Let, let's talk. Here. Let's talk about the play part, because I think of okay, of all sure. the issues. I think a lot of parents are willing to say, well, that's interesting why they do things in different. Maybe we should give our kids more freedom or maybe we should do something like uh, something in other cultures. But I think play is just one of these areas that you're going to get a lot of pushback on. It's just, I mean, not only because it's, it's, it's you're raising questions about how much of it is good for kids, but I think because parents enjoy doing it, that, that well, there's been there. No, oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask what the funny thing is, um, in these various public forum where I've um, presented this uh, idea, um, actually don't get very much pushback. On the contrary, I got quite a number of parents saying, in effect, you, you really have lifted a huge burden off my shoulders because I don't enjoy playing with my children, and I felt like there was something wrong with me. So I would never talk a parent that enjoyed playing with their children. I would never try to talk them out of or to say that it's somehow bad um, to, to play with children. But I do think it becomes kind of the exclusive outlet for the child in terms of play and many other things. I'm not sure that's such a good thing. Well, give us a couple of examples of cultures where they don't play with their kids, and I'd like to see what the what the benefits are. What the benefits are of that? Because there's so um, much so much research now about the brain and and later developing mm -hmm. of the brain, and yeah. and uh, you know, so what what is the benefit of not doing that and of looking at kids essentially as little adults? 
Uh, I'm not. I'm not necessarily. Suggest- I think historically, um, looking at kids as little adults was was fairly commonplace, and that would was probably less tolerance for play, certainly parent-child play, uh, than than what we would what we would think is appropriate for today. But actually. Uh, parents playing with their children is extremely rare throughout history and throughout culture. And the about the only place you ever see it is among hunting and gathering societies, and it pretty much stops with the end of infancy. So it's it's just totally absent. Now, play, on the other hand, just just play by itself, is universal. It's commonplace. The number of societies that somehow try to sanction or limit children's play is really, they're really very, very few, especially for young kids, toddler age kids. Everybody, everybody thinks they should play. Many societies uh, have, have uh, various little things like this is how they learn, uh, the play is child's work, um, you know, the, the play defines childhood. So people are in favor of play, they're just not in favor of adult child play and got to realize we're not talking about nuclear families that are isolated maybe from other other community members other families which is more typical today um we're talking about villages uh where there's a lot of face-to-face interaction a lot of interaction among different households and um, children form play groups um, very readily. It's rare not to see kind of a, a roving play group or multiple in a village. And so they have a lot of opportunity to play with other children. And specifically, one of the most common kind of child-rearing practices is to take a child that has been weaned or perhaps even a little earlier uh, and place them in the care of an older sibling and the and the the circumstances surrounding that experience is usually in a play group. So the older sibling takes the younger one, toddler age, let's say, into the play group and organizes their play and, and, and gets them involved in games or make believe. So uh, it's, it's very common. Children get a lot of play experience, but just not with parents. And so are they learning about rules and about sharing and about how to treat other people? Is that coming from the older kids? Sure. Or are they Absolutely. just not learning it at all? Oh, no, no, they are. They are. They are. They are. It's very, very important. It's extremely – it's more important than in these, these uh, pre-modern societies. Uh, sharing, for instance, and uh, getting along with others, uh, being a good loser – uh, all of those things are learned much more readily in those societies than in our society. We have to kind of deliberately teach our kids those things because they don't get much opportunity for spontaneous. The play that our children experience it is so much now mediated by adults and organized by adults. There's very little sort of free flow in, in a lot of children's play, even in, re- even in recess which, of course, as you know, has sort of shrunk over time. But even in the recess nowadays, uh, recess at school, there's a supervisor um, who play, places limits and restrictions on children's play. So actually what's happened, I think, is play is more and more dominated by adults. Um, children aren't learning these good lessons quite as naturally and readily 
and and so people adults have to be more explicit i suppose in teaching fairness and um and things like that well it's interesting also that uh, i think a lot of people say that the obesity epidemic is seems to be linked in mm. some way to the the burgeoning of organized sports is that kids are, are spending so much time doing regimented play that they aren't really having the mm-hmm. free play that you're talking about. Talking with David Lancey, who's the author of Raising Children, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to David about what's going on in other cultures and maybe how we can adapt some of that here. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Hey, welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brat, and I'm talking with David Lancey, who's the author of Raising Children, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. So let's talk a little bit about, um, continuing on the, on the play thing, about mm-hmm. freedom to explore. And another, I think my dad I mentioned this a number of times. I think he was looking at uh, the differences between when he grew up and mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. things are. And he's uh, a retired lawyer and judge, and I was looking at some of this from a legal perspective about how many warnings there are on, on things oh, and how yeah. many, how many yeah. uh, you know, barriers there are to, around holes and, and holes in the ground. And, you know, it's a, the p- kids used to learn. You know, somebody falls in there or somebody or twists an ankle or something, they don't do that anymore. But now we have not only, as we were talking about before, not only showing kids how to play and what to do and how to do it and, and all that, but we're protecting them yeah. from any sort of, of falling and hurting themselves or learning from their own mistakes. Yeah. I, uh, this is, I, I read um, some years ago an article that really inspired me. It was written by an anthropologist article, but uh, uh, not highly technical. And um, the author, his name is Beach, she did this marvelous kind of kind of historical um, perspective on her life growing up in a small town in New England and comparing that with, I, I don't know, 35, 40 years on, more, more recently. And what a dramatic change there was in the kind of territory and opportunities that kids had then when she was a child and now, or what she's reporting, uh, her modern, her update. And it's just amazing all the limitations that have been imposed on children of, of, of uh, more recently on where they could play and what kind of play they could engage in. Now, some of this was just the march of progress. So um, nice fields that were fun to play in had become um, parking lots and uh, and places where they could kind of drove around the neighborhood and, and village readily were now too dangerous because of high speed or a lot of sure. traffic. Oh, know, yeah. Car traffic. So, I mean, it wasn't as interesting. The interesting question for me is sometimes looking at those situations and reflecting, say, on your father's recall of his experience as a child. And you think about, well, how much of 
that can we how much of that is are we allowing ourselves to be just just over over concerned with the child's safety to the point of denying them good opportunities to learn independently or how much of that is just some sort of an event uh, uh, inevitable urbanization um, and and part of the process of of change in demographics and housing and traffic patterns and so on I mean I don't know how much it, it, it's it, I would say that it, it's, it can, should be a community concern um, I think at the community level we tend to think well if we have playgrounds you know that we're taking care of that's that's we've got the job done but I think there's all these uh, semi-public play spaces that are closed off to children yeah well on the other hand there's my my sister who lives in a in a housing community and they've got a lot uh-huh. of playgrounds and her kids during the summer they're gone most of the day they're down there at that playground which is yeah. is yeah. reminiscence i guess even though it's a it's a much more urban and much more concretized area it's very reminiscent mm-hmm. of of our childhood of just running around all over the place and being gone at the parks all day it sounds fantastic uh, yeah. I, she obviously made a wise choice in her choice of house any parents pay enormous amount of attention to the schools before you know in terms of right, real right right and that's obviously very important. But the issue you just raised, I, if I were starting over <laughs> as a young parent, boy, that's something I would pay a lot of attention to. Well, and, I mean, but it's not... neighborhood like for kids. I mean, are they visible in the neighborhood? And how do, how do people feel about kids? Do they look after them? I mean, is there that community eye on them? Right. Well, there's... There's the the freedom, and I guess which is more non-traditional societies or other other societies than ours, perhaps, where uh, you know the kids are always going to find them other kids. They're kind of like dogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, dogs always notice other dogs, and and kids yeah. seem to always notice other kids, and and they're they're always going to figure out something to do together. So we just need to give them a place to do that, and where time. it's safe and time. Right. That's the other thing. And yeah. Time. So because when uh, because part of why they don't do that. Now it isn't just that the environment isn't conducive; it's just that we got them so busy right, with organized right. activity. Yeah. So when you were looking at other cultures, were mm-hmm. you questioning parenting decisions you might have made on your own? <laughs> um, actually, um, my initial work in anthropology of childhood began uh, several years before I had children. So I would argue that my child-rearing philosophy was actually informed by, uh, to some extent, by the work I'd done in anthropology, initially the work I'd done in anthropology. So unfortunately, where my kids had their sort of formative toddlerhood, their early childhood, um, was was not a very it was we were in Papua New Guinea and it was not a very that particular place was not a very uh, where we live was not a really good neighborhood to just let them run freely, and there were really really no other kids in the immediate vicinity. However, I created um, a really nice play environment for them, and they played by themselves. I mean, as a pair, pretty close in age, both girls, and uh, they had a lot of play opportunities, but not as rich a play uh, childhood. Uh, play experiences I'd had, which is unfortunate, but it essentially did the best did the best I could do. And when the opportunity presented itself, 
for me to take them into the field, into villages. Uh, I did that, and they mm-hmm. had marvelous time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would just be sort of, we would arrive in a village, and <laughs> literally the kids would just be whisked away, and we might not see them for hours. That <laughs> was just, they would just get integrated into the community and into the play group, just hmm. most natural thing in the world. Yeah, a lot but of. I don't, I don't have any, I don't feel like if I knew now what I, you know, if I'd known then what I know now, I, I don't feel that. I don't, yeah. I don't have that feeling. Well, you know, a lot of tendency is, I think, for Americans to be somewhat self-critical, and you know, we read read things, or we 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 hear particularly we hear about Sweden. Everything's wonderful in Sweden, and everything do everything perfectly. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's fantastic. But as you're looking at some of these other cultures, did you find yourself saying, you know, there are a few things that we do better over here that they oh, should yeah. be integrating? What were some of those things? Well, I I think uh, the um, the biggest the biggest problem the the uh, uh, traditional villages have is that their their um, their their notions about health and diet are really fairly primitive and they're resistant and often very resistant to modern more modern ideas and so our 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 care of our children in terms of in terms of providing them an adequate diet. And adequate medical care and so on. This is our kids are far better off in that category. And as much as I might admire <coughs> child-rearing attitudes of native villagers in terms of play and some things like that, the fact is that the children's lives are inevitably diminished, and all of all of their experiences are are kind of blighted to a degree by chronic malnutrition and chronic bad health um, and so so and, and and there's a there's a a kind of fatalism so we go to the other extreme we over medicate we over this we over that but um, gosh I guess I'd rather be in the culture that over <laughs> is over concerned with health and diet than than the societies that are just have a kind of um, a fatalistic attitude towards towards children's illness. Yeah, that's something that that I've I guess had some difficulty with over time. Is that the, there seems to be a I mean, you hate to say this, but a slightly lower value placed on life, and mm-hmm. maybe because we're having fewer children per capita than right. some of the non the, the cultures that you're talking about, we we look at at our children as a much bigger investment than other places might. That exactly, and and our uh, infant mortality, our charge, child mortality rates are just in just tiny, low, very, very low now compared again historically, cross culturally, and that's that's very that's very important. The fact that we have fewer children, they're more precious to us, obviously, but um, but we also know we we have the means within within our it's within our means to give them adequate food and adequate. Uh, medical care, health care, um, and whereas in the village setting, the infant mortality is very high, and that contributes to this sort of fatalistic attitude yeah. of, well, yeah. it's kind of in the Lord's hands, you know? Exactly. Um, yep. David Lance. David Lance is the author of Raising Children, Surprising Insights from Other Cultures. David, thanks for joining us. Sure.
enjoying it. Thank you. Appreciate your question. WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. Take one. Behold the angry giant. Try it again, Alberto. Behold the angry giant. Perfect. Good luck tonight. Behold the angry giant. Yay! Read me another one, Dad. This is WWE superstar Alberto Del Rio. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, summer may be officially ending here fairly soon, but the fun does not have to. And as we head into the last few weeks of the official summer season, there's no excuse for not soaking up every last bit of fun, and we're here to help you do that. Let's start with Water Wubble from Wubble. Water balloon fights are awesome, and who doesn't love one in the heat of the summer? But there's always one person who gets stuck preparing most of the balloons and tying knot after knot after knot, and the post-fight cleanup is never fun for anyone. Well, to avoid the annoyance while keeping up all the enjoyment, check out Water Wubble. It's the newest member of the Wubble family. Water Wubble is easy to fill in the pool, the beach, or with a hose, but the coolest thing about Water Wubble is the reusability. You fill it, It seals beautifully. You throw it at your target, it explodes with a splash, and you repeat as much as you want to. It's for ages 7 and up, $14.99 at Walmart, Target, and Toys R Us, or online from waterwubble.com. Bobble Bits from We Cool. Looking for some indoor-outdoor fun? Try Bobble Bits. It's aimed for girls ages 5 and up, but would be fun for anyone. And we certainly don't want to pigeonhole anyone by gender. It's a squishy molding compound that lets kids create all sorts of unique items and designs that harden overnight. Jewelry they can wear or artwork they can show off on the mantle. There are four different Bobble Bits sets to choose from, including the Bobble Bits Creation Station, which is $29.99, which is the largest and most complete set, and contains six different colored compounds and an assortment of molds, clips, and art tools for designing bling, window clings, keychains, and anything else your little artist can dream up. You can also get kits specific to your child's favorite type of art or creativity. Bobble Bits Too Cool Window Clings, $14.99. A fashion kit, also $14.99. And Bobble Bits Triple Creation Packs, which have three containers of different colored crunchy molding compound. Those are $9.99 each. Pick up whatever works for you and yours. See how it goes. They're for ages 5 and up at many retailers or at buybobblebits.com. Compound King's Fluffy from We Cool. Looking to make a mess? Well, we've got you covered. Compound King's is all about slime, and we've got to admit there's something oddly satisfying about it. Squishy, but with a little poof, this fluffy stuff comes in a wide array of bright colors, and it's ready to use right out of the package. More of a DIY kind of parent. More of a DIY kind of parent? Well, it comes in powder, too. Just add water, and you'll have your very own custom slime in minute. There, the container it comes in doubles as storage, which helps minimize mess afterwards. But don't leave it out. It gets sort of, well, yucky. 
You can pick them up in single packs, three packs, and in a DIY kit that has 13 different packs of powder and a make-your-own color compound. There's even glitter and neon. It's for ages four and up. Prices start at $2.99 at places like Michael's. Tidy Ruxpin from Wicked Cool Toys. For our fellow 1980s babies and everyone else, this is more of a look ahead, but we're excited about it anyway. Teddy Ruxpin is soon to make a comeback, new and digitally remastered. Bye-bye cassette tapes in his back for the more technologically demanding child of today. So, hello, LCD eyes. Coming from Wicked Cool Toys, which has been very into the what's old is new again trend, Teddy Ruxpin will drop in time for the holidays, but you may find him online sooner than that. About 95 bucks at TeddyRuxpin.com. You can find reviews of a lot more great toys and games to do with your family at ParentsAtPlay.com. We'll be back next week with another segment for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brod. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brod, after this. From the MrTab.com radio network. Peekaboo. Peekaboo. Smile. Smile, buddy. Come on. Smile. Oh, honey, he's still not smiling. Maybe he's not a smiler. <sighs> yeah. Maybe he's just not a happy baby. Maybe he's just being a boy. You know how boys are. Or maybe he's teething. Oh, poor baby. I think his gums hurt. Maybe he's just tired. Or maybe his tummy hurts. He didn't eat that much. Maybe he's not ticklish. You think maybe he's scared of the dog? Maybe he'll outgrow it. Maybe it's a phase. Maybe he just doesn't like smiling. Maybe he has autism, and we can definitely do something to help. Maybe is all you need to find out more about autism. No big, joyful smiles by six months is one early sign. Learn the others at AutismSpeaks.org slash signs or see a doctor today for an autism screening. The sooner it's diagnosed, the better. And it can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, thanks for sticking with us. This is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Kids have an uncanny knack for knowing the exact combination of actions necessary to drive their siblings and parents to their knees. Whether they delight in asking why ad nauseum or relish in the hysteria they can provoke in their sister with an imperceptible glance or thrill at the nightly pre-bath chase, our kids know exactly how to push our buttons. Faced with similar scenarios, a lot of parents resort to yelling or giving in, but it turns out that these responses only make this irritating behavior worse. That's why some experts, including our guests for this part of today's show, are suggesting a seemingly unconventional yet rather remarkable approach. And that is to do what our kids do when we hate it when they do it, which is ignore it, or at least selectively. That's something that my guests suggest not only relieves parents from nagging, but also allows kids to actually learn from their mistakes. 
Better yet, when kids receive no attention or reward for misbehavior, they often realize their ways of acting are ineffective, and they stop doing it. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about the benefits of ignoring stuff when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Dear John, I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is serious, and I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to when you checked on me? I don't want to leave, but remember... When I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range today. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Catherine Perlman, who's the author of Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, ignore it. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems so simple, and it, but it's, in a way... I was thinking about this as I was reading the book. I think, you know, this is exactly what we tell our kids not to do. And so, but we're we're going to be ignoring them in a way. Is that okay? Well, the thing is, we're not really ignoring them. I, I like to say we're selectively ignoring them. We're actually listening to them. So we're responding to them as we normally would. But when they're whining, tantruming, complaining... The reason that they're generally doing it is because they want our attention. They want some benefit or reward from their behavior, and very often they get it. And even if it's negative attention, that's still sometimes enough of a benefit where the kid just wants to push us our buttons. And so when we ignore that behavior, after we've attended them and they continue to whine and complain, then we ignore it, but we're listening, and as soon as they stop doing it, then we can reengage them right away. So we're just basically saying that we're not going to engage with that behavior, but as soon as you change your behavior, we're back again. Okay. And do you actually say that at some point? Because um, I think you know, some kids, are, you know, some kids are going to be pretty, pretty quick on the uptake, and they're going to say, "Look, why aren't you responding to me? I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at you. I'm doing something. How come you're not paying any attention to me?" I think for some kids, you could say, "I'm ignoring you," but then after that, you have to really ignore them because they're continuing. <laughs> They will continue to try and get you to respond. I mean, it actually can get almost funny when kids really try to provoke us. What will they'll come up with? But once they know that if nothing's coming, they'll stop their behavior. And, and it only takes a couple of times. So it's like a kid will decide, like, why would I tantrum if nothing You know, if I'm not going to get an extra cookie or I'm not going to get more time on the television or whatever, then there's no point to it. I might as well be decent, and then I'm more likely to, you know, have a nice time with my parents. So um, they learn pretty quickly. So, yeah, I might just say I'm ignoring you. Um, and even with my kids, sometimes I, I, I say that. Um, and then I turn around. But then as soon as they're done complaining, then I'm back in. <laughs> Okay. So how do you begin to do this? Because presumably so, most of us have not been doing this up until this point. Right. And as you were saying in the beginning, like it's actually really hard. It sounds so simple. I'm just going to ignore them and the behavior is going to get better. Except when someone's yelling at us or someone's pushing our buttons, our instinct is to respond. We want to let our kids know why it's not okay for them to say what they're saying. 
But the thing is, they already know it's not okay for them to say what they're saying. They're saying it because they're trying to get a, a rise out of us. And then when we give it to them, it's working, like, perfectly. So the first thing I, I recommend for parents is to really think about what their triggers are, what the hardest times of day are, you know, what are the moments where they're really struggling with their kids, and think about those times in advance. Because what I'm struggling with may not be difficult for you or vice versa. Um, and then you'll be better prepared to ignore those things when it happens. So if mealtimes is a real struggle, then that's the time that you know you're going to be ignoring a lot. And so you can be prepared and think about it in advance. Um, if you have a teen who's, you know, really complainer or likes to push your buttons to get at you, you know, you'll think about that. But um, so I would say, you know, know ahead of time what your triggers are and how, how can you tell yourself when you're starting to ramp up, you know, when you're, you're starting to get upset or starting to get annoyed or, or how can you tell? We all have our own signs, and I think that can help parents not engage, which, again, like goes against our instincts. So knowing about it ahead of time can be really helpful. Okay. Give us an example of a, a situation where this might come in handy. Um, so, for example, there are some kids that want to negotiate everything. Um, and so can I have four carrots? No, you have to eat, you know, five. Well, but I want four, you know, on and on with it. Can I have four stories? No, just three. Can I have more of whatever it is? So they ask and you always answer them. But after that, you've already answered them and you've explained why you can ignore everything else. The answer is still going to be no. The kid continues to try and negotiate because even if it's one time out of 10, it's like it may get what they want. It's motivating. So um, after they've asked for something, you've said no. They said why. You say, you know, we can't have a cookie because dinner's in 15 minutes. That's it. You're done. Now you can start ignoring. And the kid will continue to try. And sometimes they'll even get worse because they'll be like, wait a minute, this usually works. I usually get a lot of attention or I usually get a cookie from my mom um, when it's not working. Um, or dad, you know, usually responds right away with a lecture or whatever it may be. You know, then they realize nothing's coming. They'll be like, okay, I'm out of school. Not bother. It's over. Like the discussion's over. It just seems remarkably simple. Does it work? I mean, really in, in that that way you that know what quickly? it's it is so simple but it's been well researched not by me um but over the years it's um, a concept from behavioral psychology called extinction it works in animals it works in young children it works in teens because really behavior that has a benefit or reward is likely to be repeated and behavior that doesn't is likely to go away and so kids are very quick to learn. Even two-year-olds can know how to kind of work the system to get a little bit more TV time, to get an extra dessert, you know, to get out of eating something that's unpleasant to them. You know, it, their behavior generally works, and that's why they do it. And even, like, a working can be, like, getting something they want or getting out of something they want or even just getting attention. Imagine you have a new sibling and, you know, you're trying to get a little attention for yourself. It's very effective. So when we withdraw our attention, it works. Most of the time, kids will not bother with that behavior. Now, a toddler, a teenager, you know, there are some age-appropriate behaviors. A toddler is going gonna, is gonna to tantrum. But with ignore it, they're going to tantrum less often, and when they do have a tantrum, it's going to be much shorter. They're angry, they're frustrated, they want you to know it, but when nothing comes of it, they're going to let it go, and they're going to move on. Now, how about with a teenager? Those are, are much more difficult creatures, although they're very similar to toddlers in a lot of ways. They are very similar to toddlers, but the difference is that we expect that behavior from toddlers, but teenagers, we expect them to be more appropriate. We expect them to be kinder, to be more thoughtful, um, to not push our buttons as much. But teenagers, like toddlers, they're, they want more independence than they can actually have, or they want more um, say in their world. And 
sometimes they want to have a later curfew, but it's not, a, it's just, it's a no, you know, or they want to have a sleepover with all their friends, but there's no parents home. It's, it's going to be a no. And they're very frustrated and they want you to know it. And if they're going to be upset, they want you to be upset. So there's a constant power struggle. And that's part of why parents are like, oh man, you know, being a parent to teenagers is so difficult, partly because it's, it's an emotional power struggle. It's not the behavior or like a tantrum in target. It's, it's like pushing mom and dad's emotional buttons, and it can be really difficult. So Ignore It actually helps parents and their teenagers work on their relationship because they disengage in all the power struggles. None of that matters, but then when the kid is not engaging in power struggle, we have now we can build and work on our relationship so we have a lot more power um, and a lot more time together. And the other thing is when we pay more attention to the behaviors we want to see more often, we tend to see those behaviors happen more often because – Kids are like, wow, my mom really noticed when I did a good job with the dishwasher. Like, maybe I should do that more often. Or, you know, dad really liked the way I sat and did my homework quietly. And so he, he let me know that, and, and that mm-hmm. was really nice. So um, kids are incredibly motivated by that stuff. And we forget that we do so much more discipline, and we kind of forget to, um, you know, give them some praise and attention for the good stuff. Well, so there is, at the same time, we're not just doing this ignoring thing all the time. You're also still trying to do positive and negative reinforcement as a preventative measure. Absolutely. I mean, as much as we can prevent by, you know, feeding our kids on time, getting them on a good sleep schedule so they're not overtired, you know, working with their temperament will definitely help. And then we absolutely want to shower our attention when they do even small things. And a lot of times parents say, like, well, why do I have to reward them for doing what they should be doing? Well, life is full of a lot of naturally occurring rewards. If I do, you know, a good job at work, my boss will notice and tell me I did a good job, and that'll feel great, and then I'll get a raise, and that feels even better. Um, That's life, and so we should really recognize when our kids do something. Sometimes that can be, you know, a high-five pat on the back or even just some nice words, and sometimes for kids that are a little bit, you know, more resistant or or struggling a bit more, then it might be actually points to build up rewards to get stuff that they want. Um, but absolutely, this ignored is not an opportunity for us to stop parenting. It's just to really temporarily ignore some of the unpleasant behavior and focus more on our positive energy. Now, what about timeouts? I know there's, there's a lot of controversy these days about whether timeouts are effective, whether they aren't effective, and what you do during timeouts. What, what, where do these fit into the ignore it philosophy? Actually, timeout is really ignore it in action. It, what it's supposed to be is a momentary break from reward and benefit for their behavior. So no attention, and we're supposed to withdraw our attention. But often what happens is parents see it as a punishment, and they want the kid to feel punished. Um, Or they keep the kids in there for too long, so a 7-year-old they think should be in 7 minutes. But the 7-year-old in 7 minutes is going to get in more trouble, and it's just more of a problem. Or the kid won't sit where they need to sit. And so for, you know, 20 minutes, the parents are running around after a toddler to try and get him to sit in timeout. And that's nothing is more fun for that toddler. And it kind of defeats the purpose of the timeout. So really timeout should just be a momentary break, enough time for the kid to stop the behavior, and then we re-engage them. And the average time for timeout, no matter what the age is, is about two to four minutes. That's it. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Catherine Perlman, who's the author of Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Catherine. Listen, as a hiring manager, I've got to tell you, the best job candidate isn't always the typical candidate. Sometimes they're a grad of life. Meet the grads of life. 
young adults of unique determination and experience, an ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. Sometimes the best candidates aren't the ones you're used to. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, talking with Catherine Perlman, the author of Ignore It, and want to get into some of the things that are further on in the book about impediments to success. And what what are some of those that you see, the, the things that are getting in the way of, of kids behaving the way that they really know that they should and that we're just not quite able to get them pointed in the right direction? So there are a couple of things. Uh, sometimes parents aren't on the same page. Um, whether they're married or divorced, um, having parents who kind of parent so drastically differently on, you know, important areas can help the kids use one parent against the other and kind of work the system. So parents should not have to be on the same page all the time. My husband and I certainly have different personalities, and we don't parent the same way all the time, and I actually think that works out nicely. But there are certain non-negotiables that we are always on, on the same page with, or if I say something or he says something, I back him up. But, you know, maybe later we have a discussion about it if we didn't think it went well or we we might have made a different decision. So I think parents not being on the same page. And then a lot of times parents are rescuing their children and letting them, instead of letting them feel the natural consequences for their behavior. And then we just become nagged. So, you know, we want kids to um, get their folders organized and put their homework back in their bag and um, you know, remember their flute and their uniform and all these things. And then when they don't, we get a call from school and then we bring it to them. And so we're not letting them feel any of the pain of their problems for not getting their organization together. We're not teaching them any organization and we're actually rewarding them for their disorganization. And so, you know, parents want their kids to be successful. We don't want them to have any consequences, you know. But the thing is, if you can't play in the game that day because you didn't have your uniform, I guarantee you're going to remember to play your uniform and every single day after that. Um, same thing if you get a bad grade because you didn't hand in your homework. That's like a natural consequence that's going to be uncomfortable for you, and you're pretty likely to remember to put your homework in your folder for the next day. So parents are, are very often rescuing their kids when they should be letting them feel a bit of their consequences. Now, what about the public aspect of this here? Because that's something I think that kids know, especially younger kids. They have this this incredible sense of how to work a crowd, and they know they can measure our level of embarrassment and ratchet up their obnoxious behavior so that it goes beyond the produce section of the grocery store, you know, wh- wherever it is that they've thrown themselves down in the middle. So ignoring things is going to be a lot harder in public, at a restaurant yeah. or, you know, someplace else where they know that they can push a little bit further. 
Absolutely. I mean, kids have our number. They know exactly when we're our most vulnerable, and they use it to their advantage. And so, you know, we don't want to seem we're afraid of being embarrassed or, you know, we see people being shamed all the time. We see dirty looks. And, um, you know, I hear lots of complaints about this parent and that parent. So we all do. So we don't want to be that parent. So we just give in. So a kid starts to whine and complain at the restaurant. We give them our iPhone or iPad or, you know, that we're online at Starbucks running to get a quick coffee. And they start having a scene. We're like, fine, here's a cake pop or a cookie or a drink for you. And then the kid's like, great, that behavior works. So not only that, I'll try it more at home, too, because, um, you know, it works so well here. And it just ends up creating a very difficult situation for parents. And so even though I think it's not easy, you are the one raising your kids. You are the one that's going to be with them all the time. You're taking them home with you. You're responsible for them. And so sometimes we end up letting other people determine what, how we should parent because we don't want them to look badly upon us. But then we're just reinforcing all the behavior we don't want to see. So I tell parents to work on ignore it at home first so your kids know the deal. When you stop rewarding the attention, they're like, it's over. You know, we should just give up. And so then when you're out in public and they start with it and you kind of turn around the other way, they know nothing's coming. And every now and then, that means there's going to be a big tantrum in Target. Like, that's just the way it is in the protocile. And you're just going to stand there and pretend like you're all good. Some people will look at you funny. Some people will be like, yes, right on. I totally get where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. And then when your kid sees nothing comes of it, they're going to start walking and they're going to help you pick out cereal in the next aisle, you know. Um, so you've got to let it go all the way without giving in so your kid realizes there's no benefit to their behavior. And sometimes in public, that's really, really hard, but it's worth it. Is it worth having a conversation beforehand if you know this is one of your child's preferred methods to say, we're going in, just want to make sure everything's okay? If you happen to let go or do something, you know, one of your one of your things in the store, we're just going to pick up and we're going to leave. Well, I don't like that idea because a lot that's a very um, popular one with parents. But the thing is, that actually is a lot of power for a kid. So now he doesn't want to be at the supermarket. He doesn't want to be at his grandparents' boring birthday party or, you know, at the concert for his big brother. He wants to go home, so he's going to act up. So you'll say, if you don't behave, we're going to have to go home, and that's exactly what he wants. But I do think, actually, it is very important to set up our expectations before we go into the concert, before we go into the supermarket, and say, here's what I expect from you. I expect you to stand by my side or be in the cart. I expect for you to help me with the groceries, you know, help me load stuff in the cart. And, you know, if you do a good job and we get in and out by, you know, 2 o'clock, then we'll have time at home for an extra game before dinner or whatever it is. Um, If not, I'm going to ignore you, um, and then you will not have time for a game later. That's it. Um, But I do think a lot of times we don't let our kids know what we expect from them, Mm -hmm. and and so they don't know what what we want, and then we're setting ourselves up for a disappointing experience. Right. You've used the word reward a couple times, and I'd like you to – Talk a little bit about the difference between a reward and a bribe. I think people hear one and think that they've heard the other. Yeah. So bribes and rewards, a lot of people associate as the same thing, but they're actually very different. When we are bribing our kids, it's like dealing with a hostages situation or terrorists. Like they have us and they know exactly that we're vulnerable and they're like, you better give me this or I'm going to misbehave. And it feels bad. We don't feel comfortable about it, but we do it anyway. That's a bribe. A reward is set up in advance. It's not in a moment of a difficult situation, and it's really to help kids encourage them and motivate them to act right about something. So a reward can be anything from um, just time with a parent, a game, a bubble bath, 
It could be points so that they can buy something on iTunes or a video game system, or it could be points that get them more time, you know, watching a TV show or something like that. You can be really creative, and I try to have an exhaustive list in my book of what parents can use as rewards. But rewards are set up in advance. It's very specific what behavior will get a reward. And then when they do the behavior, we give them the reward, even if it's a high five. A bribe is a kid is already misbehaving, and we're desperate, and we say, you need to behave. If you behave, I will give you this lollipop. That's a bribe. It feels uncomfortable. It's really at the child's power. Um, It's not set up in advance, and so that's the major difference. What about things that are behaviors that you are not seeing in your child, something you want your child to do as opposed to something you want them to stop doing? Like you want your child to to do his or her chores without being asked or to be more responsible, to, you know, walk the dog, whatever it is, uh, get homework done without having to be hounded. And that's not the kind of thing you can ignore. If you ignore it, uh, things are not going to get any better. Can you use the ignore it strategy to produce the kind of results you're looking for in that kind of situation? Yeah, so we definitely are going to still give kids chores, and we're still going to have expectations for them. So they still have to keep their room clean. They still have to empty the dishwasher. They still have to complete their homework by a certain time or whatever it is that you want to do as, you know, requirements for living in this house. And I'm not going to ignore it if you choose not to do it. There's going to be a consequence. So you need to empty the dishwasher or there is going to be this consequence. But what I am going to ignore is all of the complaining about it, you know. And a lot of times what happens is kids complain and just please do I not have to do it? Can I just skip it? Why do I have to do it over and over again? And sometimes parents get so fed up, they just do it themselves, which is exactly what the child wants. Um, so I'm going to ignore all of that. If you don't empty the dishwasher by dinner, your consequences, you're going to have to do the dinner dishes too. So I'm going to ignore the complaining, but you still have to do your chores. So I think that a reward system can help motivate kids to do their chores. Ignoring a lot of the complaining and whining will let them see I have to do it no matter what, and then instilling a consequence if they don't do it. All right, we have just less than a minute, but I want to ask you this. What about bad habits? Somebody picks their nose or does does something like that. Ignoring that is not going to be a, a particularly effective way of making that go away. But honestly, there isn't any effective way to have that go away. <laughs> if a kid okay. knows that they're going to get a rise out of you every time they say a bad word or stick their finger in their nose, they're going to continue to do it. So the best thing to do is just to ignore it. And a lot of times kids are doing these annoying behaviors without even thinking about it. So every time we're kind of disciplining them, we're kind of ratcheting down their self-esteem. We're kind of knocking it down. We're saying, like, we don't like this behavior, but the kid kind of sees, like, you don't like me because I'm fidgety, you know? And so for me, there's, like, no benefit to um, doing any of those things. You know, if table manners is really important to you, focus on that. But a lot of these little annoyances, you should just let go. Build your relationship and don't worry so much about those things. Catherine Perlman's the author of Ignore It, How Selectively Looking the Other Way Can Decrease Behavioral Problems and Increase Parenting Satisfaction. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.